0: Hey it's Sarah. Don't forget to download and subscribe to the Mina Kime show featuring Lenny, that's her dog. This week Mina runs through the top NFL storylines with Adam Lefko. You can find the Mina Kime show wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well that's what she said.
0: That's what she said. Conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
1: My name is Virgie Tovar, and my dilemma is that I deeply super miss
0: being able to travel, and I realize it's a huge part of my identity. So, girl, same. This has been rough, and... You know, international travel plans that got busted, including finally going to Africa with my parents who have never been, Um, all the trips to visit friends and family, what would have been my first time to Vancouver, Uh, Europe for a Pearl Jam show, Uh, a work gig in Santa Barbara that I was going to stick around for, a couple weddings in some great places, just general bummers all around. I know we all had them as dates passed us by and trips got canceled. And I wish I had a real solution for you, but I don't. Um, The best I can tell you is try to spin it to seeing the positives of being home. Maybe take care of house renovations or painting a room or hanging art that you've been putting off. You know, all the stuff that we don't have time for, now's the time to do it. Maybe go through your favorite pictures from previous trips and relive how great they were. Choose a couple that you really like and hang them up somewhere, and that'll remind you and get you excited for when you get to go travel somewhere again. And uh, one of my friends had to cancel a trip uh, to Mexico with her family, so I sent her... Uh, at-home, you know, margarita mix and some glasses and some decorations. So you could do that. You could throw a little party at your house with some of the food and music and drinks of somewhere you'd like to go. Uh, Sometimes the anticipation and the planning for a trip is super fun too. So find somewhere you know you want to go when you can and uh, read up on that place in advance and get ready for that trip. We got a lot of time to plan and anticipate. So uh, maybe at least give yourself something to look forward to by picking somewhere you want to go and learning about it. that's really the best we can do right now the commish has spoken my guest is virgie tovar she's an author activist and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on weight-based discrimination and body image i thought she'd be a great guest during the holidays when food can be a trigger for people with eating issues and also in the new year as a lot of people attach weight loss or their body size and aesthetics to their resolutions and their ideas of happiness. She holds a master's degree in sexuality studies with a focus on intersections of body size, race and gender. She contributes to Forbes covering the plus size market and how to end weight discrimination at work. She also founded Babe Camp, a self-guided online course designed to help people Break up with diet culture. She's the author of You Have the Right to Remain Fat and the Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. She also has a podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, season two of that debuts January of this upcoming year. Uh, We get into her pivot from sort of dangerous dieting to the point of even giving herself scurvy because of a lack of nutrition. And how she found instead self-acceptance and her work as a fat activist, the meaningful, statistically borne out ways that overweight people are discriminated against, why arguments that defend sizeism rely mostly on inaccuracies, and also a key point that I think isn't discussed enough but is quite simple and we sort of get to at the end, which is that people who are overweight deserve the same rights and respect and opportunities and pay and health care as anyone else. And being a former athlete and a believer in healthy living and taking care of our bodies, um, I think that it's good to want to be healthy. But those who choose to discriminate against fat people under the guise of caring about their health or health-related costs of obesity fail to apply that same logic to people who look healthy based on society's stereotypes, but are actually deeply unhealthy because of many factors, which could be, you know, eating a bunch of fast food or nutrient-empty foods or smoking cigarettes or other choices. But because they are genetically predisposed to have less body fat, they're not seen as unhealthy or judged and discriminated against. Uh, so we get into the arguments of sort of preaching fat acceptance or labeling the celebration of of fat bodies as irresponsible that still goes on in academia and journalism and uh, lots of topics that people kind of talk about socially, but not usually with the backing of, of research and the work she's put in. So I thought she was a super interesting guest. I hope you guys enjoy this.
1: That's what she said.
0: So. I think it was earlier this year, but time is a flat circle. Uh, But I think it was earlier in the year 2020 uh, that I flew out to the Bay Area for literally a day uh, to do something with the Warriors for women's. uh, I guess it was Women's History Month uh, was 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 going to be the rollout of these videos of a handful of of women from all backgrounds um, talking about issues across um, uh, social problems and race and women and identity and it was a badass group of women and Alasia Clarendon who was on this podcast uh you guys might remember a month or two ago uh, I met her and I also met Virgie Tovar there and I was just overwhelmed and impressed by um your intellect and your expression of so many issues that are sort of touched upon but not dived into well enough in our society in 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 most places, I think. And so I wanted to have you on to get into it some more. And I do want to say off the top that I'm well aware that I have some very deeply rooted issues around food and weight and body image. And I have very much been affected by society's expressions of what matters and what's uh, worthy. And so when I push back or if I push back on anything, it's because I want your expertise as someone who studied this Um, and so hopefully none of it will ever sound extremely dumb but if it does, it'll probably be uh, the same extreme dumbness that you've heard from people over the years uh, who are just not used to discussing these issues in a sort of academic way Yeah. Um, so that's that's my warning for like um, I'm coming at this with with the best of intentions but I know how um, I know how I am by like just being, first of all, an athlete my whole life and then working in an industry that prioritizes uh, thinness and beauty. So uh, that off the top, let's get into it. Um, (laughs) Because this is something that you, um, you know, you have a master's in sexuality studies with the focus on, you know, body size and race and gender. And um, you consider yourself a fat activist. This is your life's work. So you should be able to come at this in a way that will help me understand and dive into some of the reasons that we that we feel the way we do about these things. Let's go all the way back, okay. all the way back. Yeah. I listened to a lot of podcasts that you did and read a lot of your work. And, um, you talk a lot about the moment that we all have in some way. Um, you maybe more dramatically where we're a certain age and all of a sudden we realize how other people and society see our bodies as opposed to just being in them. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean absolutely.
1: Like I mean, I want to share off the top like a statistic which is that most children in the United States um are aware of fat phobia which is essentially the idea that, you know, being fat is bad. Um, by the age of five, like researchers go in and ask children, would you rather lose an arm or be fat? Would you rather, you know, lose like, ha- like lose a part of, lose a family member, or lose like a parent or be fat? And they always choose the other thing, not being wow. fat. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it's also really impressive when you think about a five-year-old brain, right? Um, which is still trying to understand and grapple with like Trees and what what is a tree? What is the ocean? Who like I mean, right? Like and so and to be able to have that strongly felt sense so early on is really powerful and really speaks to the level of like how committed this culture is to that ideal. But for me, it really looked like. Similar time frame. I was five years old. I had never. I've always been a bigger person. I mean, I come from a family of bigger people, and so I I was always the biggest kid in the class, which I knew, but then I didn't have any shame about it until I was taught fat phobia um, at the age of five, and it was really like at that point I was in kindergarten, and it was just it just became this like never ending onslaught of like you're fat that's terrible no one's ever going to love you and you're going to get abused until you become thin and so I did what a lot of people in that situation and a lot of us even if we're not in that situation um, did and I just undertook like dieting and starvation and ultimately basically had an eating disorder for like 20 years trying Hmm. to become a thin person which I was never born to be.
0: Yeah. So one of the things you talked about um, in, in, in a different show I heard was uh, your trip to Italy, which you considered uh, a, a three month opportunity to completely yes. change who you were, Right. Uh, but not in positive or healthy ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, I had, like, we've all seen these movies, the transformation movies, right? Right.
0: I've like, deeply. Yeah. Into- no, I still want to buy a uh, fixer upper in Italy and then have my handyman be the love of my life. Like, that's still going to happen, right? I, I realize I'm already married, but, like, just in case it doesn't work out, I think Under the Tuscan Sun is, like, a good second marriage goal. Is he the handyman? No, he was so, I can't remember what he was. It was a good movie, though. It was really good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we all kind of, like, we've been taught this dream
1: that, like, we go away and we come back and we're, like, something about us is fundamentally a 100% different, whether that's love or that's our body. And so as someone who has always been bigger, like, my transformation dream was always around, like, going somewhere and returning and no one being able to recognize me anymore because I'm so thin.
0: And I mean, uh, yes, the Sabrina. If if you go uh, to Paris and you buy one beret, right? they won't recognize you. Exactly, exactly. No, totally. And so, like that kind of,
1: yeah. I mean, and, I de- and right, like, and you know, the the irony, that the torture of it is that I was attempting to lose weight while I was in like the food capital of the world in some ways. Um, and so it it was like that extra sense of like, oh my God, I can't have this, or I can only have one spoonful of this. And I really that was like. Actually, the second time in my life, the first time I undertook, like I actually starved myself really, it was like when I was 11 for several months, same story, but it was like about, you know, spending the summer... Um, losing weight and then coming back transformed but it was like a diff- i was an adult at this point like 18 19 years old and was doing it again and so you know i really was like i want to come back be a different person i'm gonna have to go the extreme route which is like eating almost nothing and it and it made me ill like essentially i mean it's like so, it's sort of like funny sad like a lot of weird stories about like diet culture where it's just like i got like i had the beginning stages of scurvy when i got back dude like legit like like when you eat food, you get stuff that pirates had
0: in the 1400s. Like that's what happens, <laughs> you know. I have a friend who had gout in college, which is the opposite. Gout Ooh. is like too many rich foods, like wines and steaks. And she's this like, just just like awesome babe, like Southern Belle. And she, when she dropped the, I had gout in college. I nearly died. Uh, so scurvy is yeah, is exactly. uh, is the new one.
1: It's sort of a throwback illness, but it really is like a thing you know, I just did not, I just could not have imagined for a thousand years that I was going to ultimately be experiencing like, like, you, it's like it starts with um, loss of equilibrium because you don't have enough calories, right? Like, so you start getting dizzy all the time and you can't stand
0: up and then you're nauseous because you're dizzy. It's like really a lot. Um, and this is just a lack of nutrients. You were eating yeah, so little in your yeah. attempts to starve yourself and to lose right. weight that you didn't feed your body anything to keep it going.
1: Yeah. I mean, literally it was like just starting to slowly lose function. And I mean, at that point I'd already been dieting for, you know, over a decade. And so like, and again, to imagine an 18 or 19 year old who's been, whose body has been battling sort of like a a, a different types of starvation on a spectrum for 10 years, more than 10 years at that point, it's kind of startling and it's really stark, but that was definitely my experience.
0: Okay. So you grew up with this and it's clear if you were dieting by 11 and a lot of us, I think we first kind of when puberty hits and your body starts to take on curves or otherwise is when you're, Oh no, I'm losing. Like I had, you know, quote unquote, the ideal before all of a sudden I became a human being. When I was a child, I looked like Mm -hmm. what they're telling us to look like, you know, well into adulthood. Um, but so if you had been kind of taking in these messages from society and the outside world since 11, Um, it created probably a bit of a effect on your personality too. I remember, so I love Lindy West who obviously uh, wrote the book shrill and, and that turned into a television show. And she was an author long before that and wrote for Jezebel and other places. Um, But she talked about how, her bigness, and because it was sort of cast as aesthetically wrong, um, made her also cast as someone who was failing morally at life. And so you make yourself smaller in any way you can, if you can't physically make your body smaller. So it affected her personality and it affected the way she interacted with other people. And did you feel like you had to keep yourself small if your body wasn't able to be kept to the ideal?
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, I think that, you know, I mean, really, like, I don't feel like I had a choice. Like, certainly growing up, I mean, again, like, the fat phobia was relentless. Like, it was relentless. List. Like, if there was a single day at school that I didn't get, like, hmm. you know, emotionally <laughs> battered, um, I would literally go home and I would sit down for like an hour and try to retrace my steps to see if I could emulate that day to the T the next day in hopes that nothing bad would happen to me. It was like that relentless. So, like, when you're being, when you're being, like, you know, truly, like, kind of, you're being abused. Um, there isn't any space for you to be anything besides trying to avoid that abuse. So like my my fashion changed, right? Like I I went from like somebody who grew up. My my grandmother and mother are seamstresses who made us clothing, right? Like and and I I only wanted to wear black and dark blue. I only wanted to wear oversized clothes. I tried to speak up as little as possible. Um, I mean I felt very uncomfortable like having crushes even like normal parts of development um, because I just knew that it was going to increase the torture even more. Um, so and I think into adult. It, it actually kind of went the other way where I started to kind of accept my place as an outcast and I started to act out like literally just be like okay I'm a pariah cool I'm gonna wear this ridiculous thing I'm gonna wear sunglasses indoors I'm gonna wear a fur coat I am like when I'm inside I'm gonna do all this like I'm gonna do all this stuff to let you know that I'm here to remind you of like the the shitty world that you've created and the, then like the caricature that i've had to become in order to live in this world
0: right right that feels so uh, true across different spaces for anybody who's quote unquote different um at, at certain ages and especially throughout school when homogeneity is so uh, promoted, uh that there tends to be a moment at which you're like, fine, if I'm not gonna blend, I'm gonna go the other direction. Yeah. As wildly different as possible. And and make that feel like a chosen identity when sometimes it really is just lashing out at the idea that I'm that you're not accepted. Mm. Um so gosh, I can't I can't even imagine um just daily uh, abuse and 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 mocking because it's hard enough to be an adolescent and try to get by without that. Yeah. Um, so what moment in time or at what age was there a pivot point for you where you decided that, you know, I'm not going to spend my life starving myself. I'm not going to spend my life imagining what things would be like if I looked different. Instead, I'm going to embrace who I am and, and make that actually a, a, a my career as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was really a series of moments. Like I think one of the, one of the biggest ones, which wasn't really radical. I mean, again, like I think that change was about a decade coming. Um, And I mean, I want to kind of like go through the really quick highlight points, which are the first one really was when I was like 18 years old and I had been told from the age of five that like no man, no boy would ever want to be my boyfriend, would ever want to kiss me, would ever love me, would ever marry me. And then who would tell eight, you that classmates yeah like the boys in my class um and so you know and then like at the age of 18 i started um, i was an early adopter of uh, an early adopter of internet dating like many of us uh, pariahs and nerds um <laughs> and so all of a sudden i had like m- like you know, multiple partners. I was like meeting people who found me attractive and I was having sex, like kind of whenever I wanted. And um and it kind of completely blew my mind. And I like because I mean I fully, fully, fully had internalized what these boys had taught me at school, which was that I was dis- disgusting and, and like complete, like completely no one would touch me with a 10 foot pole and I remember telling the like the you know the people I was chatting with on these like early iterations of, of like dating uh, sites um just being like yeah I just want to let you know that like you know I'm smart and I'm pretty funny I think and like I've got a cool personality but I am like completely disgusting and you won't ever want to touch me but like if you can overcome that then like maybe we can hang out I'm like literally saying things you would like, do that
0: mm-hmm. you would that do that
1: over and over what like, would the response be their response would be like, "Well, you're probably not and I understand if you, you know, I understand a lot of women feel that way, but I don't think that it's true." And then we would meet and they'd be like, "Yeah, you're just not you're just not that thing. Whatever you think you are, it's just not you're not that." Um, that's a nice feeling it is a nice feeling and so you know like that i mean again it wasn't very radical just like having sex with dudes like not that radical but um, <laughs> like for somebody who was told that it could it really blew the lid off the whole thing and i and i think like you know, my, my brain has always been very analytical. So I think like, rather than be like, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. I was like, what else have they lied to me about? And I think that really started like the truth seeking journey that I sort of been on for quite some time. But like, you know, I think like that, and then later on, you know, not, not that much lo- later, I was introduced to feminism, which really was a turning point for me. And then, and then I it dated, like I had a long-term relationship with someone who identifies as fat positive, And that. really blew my mind and he was one of the first people who like taught me how to stop dieting right he was like you don't have to deny yourself every single thing like you're allowed to have the food that you want there is nothing wrong with you and no man gets to tell you what size you are um and that was like like huge right um and like i just felt so unconditionally loved
0: and so uh, and like worshipped you know like in that relationship and then i just to clarify fat positive is a feeling about your own body or about other people's or both?
1: I mean, it's kind of both. Like, I mean, it's, I think of it more as like sort of a political stance where it's like I do not see fat people as either inferior – like I do not see fat people as bad, nor do I see fat people as inferior physically, sexually, romantically, intellectually, or like or, or health-wise. I just see like – so that's kind of like what that word, okay. that phrase means. But so you
0: can either feel – you can either be – uh, fat yourself and be fat positive or you can be thin and yeah. be fat positive about other people's fatness. Right. Like any okay. person
1: of any size can be fat positive. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, like that was, that was, that was huge. Right. And then I think really the final, the final straw, like the thing that really made me commit my life to this was like, I met fat activists, right. I met people, many of them were queer women um, who really were like you can be you can have a fabulous life and you can never diet again and there's nothing wrong with being fat. And I think like it was like that combination of like not just that I could live a normal life at any size, but that I could take like I could like bring it up to an 11, which is like where my instincts really reside like as a person. I can bring it to an 11 as a fat person. And, and that works. I don't have to be sorry. and I don't have to try and make my body any smaller. And I think like that, that really um, changed my life. And from that point, I was committed to trying to help other women thrive, you know, wh- whatever size they were, just like recognizing that like dieting is a form of starvation. The fact that we live in a culture that believes it's totally fine to promote women starving themselves is a completely disgusting,
0: unethical thing. I want to get into the fat positivity and the idea of of, you know, eating what you want, when you want, where you want and and making those choices for yourself, not based on uh, body. But I quickly want to get to the TED talk, because uh, I think that that next topic could could go in many directions. And I don't want to forget this. I loved the way you started your your TEDx talk. And I want you to explain how you came upon the idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, so the, so the TEDx talk starts with a friend of mine who has some similar, like, on paper, some similar demographic, um, you know, overlap, but we, we're different sizes. She's a thin person and I'm a fat person. Um, and, and I had her start the talk. Uh, and I had her sort of, like, you know, pretend that she was me. And then about a minute into it, I came out and said, like, are you less willing to hear me? now that you know this is me, now that you know that the actual person who's Virgie Tovar is this person in this body. Um, What shifted from seeing her to seeing me? And it it was really about um, kind of helping people live that moment of discrimination. You know, and I think like because I think it's really easy to theoretically be like, oh yeah, discrimination, right? Probably, maybe, but like in that, if you're living it in real time, like, whoa, my attitude, my feeling, my receptiveness, my willingness to accept this person deserves to be here, my willingness to understand this person is intelligent or like an expert in this area has shifted now that I know that this person's in a fat body, and I thought that that was really a powerful thing that I wanted people to like. You can't really deny that moment of that shift. When you're living it
0: right well and and i think it wasn't um are you less attracted to me it wasn't are you judging me it was do you believe that i am less qualified to talk to you about my area of expertise because those two things are so unrelated Mm -hmm. and yet we know based on statistics and studies that people do genuinely not trust fat people as much, yeah. not believe them to be smart, not believe yeah. them to be experts and educated. Yeah. Um in and in and in some really incredibly meaningful ways, like going to a doctor and telling them how you feel and having them say, I, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you. You should leave. And it turns out you you were deeply ill right. and they just didn't believe you. Um can you get into quickly some of the ways, especially in in your research and your studies on this, fat people are discriminated against in ways that should be actually you know affected by policy changes yeah i mean one of them the first one i'm thinking of is the income gap like
1: plus size so first of all 68 percent of u.s women are a size 14 or above meaning a plus size um and yet there's an income gap between plus size women and straight size women um and that income gap is anywhere between nine thousand and nineteen thousand dollars annually another way that the discrimination shows up is actually plus size women and this is something that always blows people's mind because there is this idea this stereotype that fat women are lazy and sedentary what's interesting is the data don't bear that out especially in the workplace and let me say more about that um so first of all thin women get funneled into sedentary desk client-facing jobs, and plus-size women, especially women of color, get funneled into physical labor jobs. And this happens through like a series of different kinds of things. I don't want to really get into it because it's very intricate, but like, essentially the reality is plus-size women tend to be in physical jobs that require a lot of labor and movement, and then women tend to be in client-facing sedentary jobs. Um, another way that it really shows up is to your point is like medical discrimination, right? They've, like, researchers have done the work and found that medical care providers have a lot of anti-fat bias. The medical world in general does. They're taught this in medical school, right? Beyond the culture, just generally. And so what this looks like is a fat person shows up for an appointment, no matter what symptoms they are presenting, they're gonna be leaving with a diagnosis primarily to lose weight and diet. Um, and so, and and then we also know the reality that most fat people are already dieting, already have an eating disorder and don't even know it. And so they're being diagnosed something they're already doing and it just creates distress. Um, I mean, there's the list kind of goes on and on and on, but like, these are definitely areas where like policy change could be really effective.
0: It's funny you say that because I remember a moment in collegiate track where I had back to back meetings with a nutritionist that they brought in for everyone on the team to talk to in, mm-hmm. in college and um and then my coaches and the nutritionist looked at what I was doing, which involved diet pills and just like vegetables all the time. And then at night I would eat like candy sometimes because that my body like wanted anything that was like an immediate response. And she was like, you don't have enough calories. Like you're not eating enough. You're, you're not eating enough to support working out, you know, three hours a day. And then I got to my coach and we're looking at strength listing from all of our weightlifting stuff. And he's like, you're not strong enough. Your, your body strength to body weight ratio isn't good, which essentially mm. meant you weigh too much. <laughs> so right. like back to back, the messages are like, you are still not skinny enough, despite the fact that you're not eating enough. So like whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing is still not good enough, but there's no way to reconcile the two. Um, and it's, and it's really difficult because we ignore genetics. We ignore, uh, what what we were born with and, and we fight so hard for something that isn't an achievable ideal for certain people, for most people, mm, right? It's just yeah. not possible regardless of being a division one track athlete who's working out three hours a day and eating just like vegetables all the time. Uh, that's still not going to be possible for me. And there's a point in your life where you sort of have to accept reality and expectation and decide the amount of time you spend wanting to change what you look like won't change it. Right. So you either get to waste that time imagining a life where you look like uh, Giselle or something or decide that you're not going to waste any more time imagining what that is and that you can take everything in sort of uh, a realistic approach of how do I feel good and feel healthy and take care of myself without it being all about aesthetics. Um, but I think that it, it's hard because we 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 often conflate aesthetics with things that are not proved out um Like in in reality, right? We, We assume that fat people are unhealthy and we assume that how people look can tell us whether they make good choices. And that's a big part of it, too. Right. Virgie is like your work is in just helping people understand that the split second views they have of people doesn't tell you at all whether they exercise or eat right or anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I was recently talking to um, a friend who's um, a researcher. Her name is Dr. Janet Tomiyama. She's at UCLA and she's um, a health psychologist. And one of the findings that she has made and and published is that over 70 million Americans have been either misdiagnosed as healthy or unhealthy because the diagnosis was made based on weight. So that's like one in five Americans either are thin and think that they're healthy because their doctor doesn't even intend interrogate after they say that they're thin or if that wow. person who just is presumed unhealthy um, and it actually has like you know in terms of sort of the numbers and the charts and the vitals and whatever um, that according to those metrics that they are what would be considered healthy um, and so it, that, that's pretty that's a pretty staggering statistic um, and I think like it, it's important to say like right, that statistic really matters and also being healthy or not healthy should not be dependent on whether someone gets human rights and access to equal pay. Yeah of course.
0: Yeah. I mean, because it's not like we do the same thing for very clear, uh, unhealthy choices and and weirdly sometimes celebrated ones like smoking cigarettes. There's no argument about whether that's healthy for you or not. Right. Um, And yet we somehow turned that into something cool for like decades. Right. That was the expression of someone being cool was a movie or a TV show, them smoking a cigarette. And we never like use that to discriminate, um, against now, of course, there are policies in place and there's, there's efforts to, um, try to get people to move away from that as a, as a practice. But it is interesting how over the course of time, media and otherwise, um, reinforce our stereotypes about what is good or bad, attractive or unattractive, et cetera. Um, So one of the things that's interesting about media is that in recent years, there has been this push towards rejecting diet culture and rejecting um, the limitations that that magazines will show us in terms of what bodies look like. Um, back in the 60s, even, there was that um, National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance came around. And over yeah. the course of the years since, it's become this sort of just this movement to make body culture more inclusive, to make the people that we see more diverse in shape and size and everything else. Um, but there's backlash to that. And that's something Lindy West has written about a lot. In fact, if you look at something like the Guardian where Lindy writes about fat positivity and acceptance. Simultaneously, there will be articles from people saying it's not okay to be fat. Stop celebrating obesity. How do you feel about kind of reconciling those two things, these people that are pushing for more of it and the people that are arguing that it's a bad message to send?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of it, right, it's it's literally like you have been investing all of your money at one bank, and I'm telling you that bank is trash. And right, like some people are going to be like, yay, a new bank, yay, we hated that bank, it had all these surcharges, yay. And some people are going to be like, wait a minute, I put all my money in this bank, and I've been doing this for 40 years, I'm not interested in going to a new bank because I've learned all the rules, and I've accepted them. And it really is about that, right? That's what that's what social change fundamentally is always about, It's like, are you you open to the new bank with better stuff.
0: But also, was it working for you at the old bank? Yes, absolutely. Basically, like, that's why white people are like, wait, 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 wait. Do black lives have to matter? This has been working great for me.
1: Right. Absolutely. I think there's absolutely definitely like a, a personal like, was it working for you? And there's some people I mean, what I love and what like makes my heart like beat in a loving way is like there are people who have been benefiting at that old bank who are like, you know what? we need a new bank. And like, and, and those people do exist. So I'm, I'm happy that I think that, like, regardless of why you're down to go to the new bank, I'm here for you. But I think at the end of the day, right, like, what's hard is with people, I completely understand, like, really, not not in the arena of body size stuff, but, like, I understand in other ways, like, right, like, I'm a straight person. I'm at the bank of straight people, right? Like, I, was like I mean, I like, I, it's not like I'm somebody who's completely separate from every single part of society. And so I understand the pain of being like but i know this thing but i've worked so hard But i sacrificed so much to be here like you don't get to change the rules now that i'm at the front of the line or whatever you know and so i think what's hard is like you, you've got to re- people really have to do that internal work nobody can do that for you nobody like, you, i could explain to you for a million i could cite every study that i know and that might not change your actual spirit the spirit of how you feel about this you have to do that work on your own you know
0: So let's talk about some of the challenges to the work that you do. And again, um, it's weird sometimes for issues that some of us deem, I don't know, casual or or every day um, to be discussed and debated at the highest levels of academia. For some people, they don't understand and have never given the time to understanding the true study of weight discrimination, uh, fat positivity, or any of these issues, right? They might understand nutrition being studied down to the near molecular level, but the way society interacts with size is not something that they consider something worth devoting that kind of time and energy to. It is something that you have. And so I imagine it must be frustrating at times for you to bring this wealth of knowledge and experience and understanding to a topic that many people will be, like you just said, they've been at that bank and because the bank works for them, They cannot be convinced otherwise. And so it results in a lot of butting of heads. And one of them that I saw in in doing the research for this is your opinion that people should be able to eat where, eat when, eat how much, and eat what they want all the time. How does that intersect with health? And how does that intersect with how it makes your body feel if you eat crap all the time? Right? I mean, it's not just about aesthetics and weight it's also about what you put into this body that you have that needs to function
1: right I mean and this is this is always this is kind of the conundrum that that is really hard for people to understand um so diet culture actually creates the dysfunction and disorder like so for example right like if we didn't have diet culture you wouldn't even presume that all people would eat would be junk it's only because that, stuff is that quote-unquote junk is like off-limits through diet culture (laughs) that like the idea of sitting down and eating that all day sounds appealing and that's sort of one of the like I mean and I think like a great example you know I don't know there's like so many other uh sort of analogous examples but you think about right like how um like the same is true around sexuality right like you know it's like where these these for the forbiddenness of it drives you to do these like kind of wild weird things that humans wouldn't be doing if they didn't right. get some shame about it. But I think that's amazing, right, is like a, a, one of the cornerstone ideologies of diet culture, which is a cornerstone ideology, essentially of like living in a Christian sort of colonial culture, is that like, if we do not control every single thing that gives our bodies pleasure, then we will become animals who are out of control, right? And like, that's just amazing. <laughs> right, what we found is, and this is true of like dietitians, psychologists, right, like I've talked to lots of people, like in general, what people need is to be able to trust their body. The reason why we feel that, that sort of like that vice grip on every single bite of food that we eat is because we've been taught that if we don't do that, then crazy, awful, terrible things will happen. When in actuality, right, like our bodies have limits. Our bodies tell us, I am done. I am full. I don't like this. This makes me feel sick. There's that, there's I that. want there's vegetables.
0: Right. There's, there's, there's <laughs> whenever everywhere. I go on a bender, my body's like, please, salad. <laughs> yeah. Nachos and beer for a whole weekend. What are you what are we doing here? Right. I, and and it's not just about uh, uh, weight. It's about like what your body says. It's intuitive eating. Your body is saying, okay, now that we had that, I want some of this that has a bunch of nutrients. It makes me feel better. And is going to like regulate what you've just put in me. Totally.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think what's really, what's really great is like, you know, when we tell people, guess what, no one's going to, no one's going to shame you. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. Eat until you're full. Eat the stuff that you feel drawn to eat. There's nothing off limits. They actually make amazing decisions, right? They actually, you know, we can trust them. And, and at the end of the day, like that's kind of where we need to, to sort of land, especially, I mean, I talk about this a lot it, it becomes a real pain point for people when they become parents, I've noticed, because they don't want to teach their kids how to live like this. They, they don't want whatever they learn, they don't want to pass it on to their kids. And so they've been forced to kind of think like, you know, what rules do we want? What ethic, what ideology do we want to introduce to our kids around like, so they don't have eating disorders like we do. And I think like one of my favorite people who's also like an academic and in, in Canada, and she's a nutritionist also, and she's like our rule our house is that like you fill up your tummy, you eat the things that you want. And those are the rules, right? And like, that's what she teaches her kids. And I ultimately what's going to happen is that they're going to have an amazing relationship to their bodies and their food. And frankly, dieting and like controlling your food isn't correlated again, longitudinally in the data with actual weight control or weight loss again long-term what diets are core any restriction is correlated with is depression and anxiety which we know as a culture is bad for our health
0: (laughs) right it's so true though this idea that if you're if you have a healthy relationship with food that means you you choose good versus bad and that there's actually ways to assign that to foods when instead the healthiest relationship is i want to eat that so i'm going to And then the next time I'm going to decide what I want to eat based on what I want to. And hopefully some of that will be natural instinct towards nutrient dense things. And sometimes it'll be just something that tastes good. Um, But I do find that when I've been super restrictive, I used to occasionally be like, this is before I became vegetarian. I would be like, you know what? I've had a rough day. I'm going to eat a burger. And then I'd eat the burger and be like, but I actually like the salad more. <laughs> like I just mm-hmm. ate it because I was telling myself that I got to make myself feel better with food by eating something that's quote unquote, not allowed. But I didn't even really want it. And I didn't like it more, but my brain was telling me. So I was actually making worse choices, not worse, but um, choices that were less satisfying and less healthy because my brain was telling me to act out of the rigid sort of constraints of what I had allowed myself, um, which right. is what a lot of people do. And then that disordered eating comes from that. But there's, there's obviously a line between that and people who have actual issues with overeating right people who don't have a finish line they don't stop when they're full they don't and and that's different than the message that you're sending right like there are certain people who medically need to be treated for an inability to deal with food in a a healthy way
1: well, I mean, in general, I, I found that people who, um, you know, so to, to, to back up just a little bit, like, I think, right, like, again, another thing that people don't understand typically is that restriction leads to binging. Um, it's binging doesn't typically happen outside of restriction, um. So people who don't restrict don't tend to binge. It's only people who tend to restrict who tend to binge. Um, and with that in mind, right? Like when people are eating past the point of being full, that means that they are in distress, right? Like it means that like they've lost any kind of like th- like something's going on, right, with them. And and I don't I don't. For me, it's like the the idea that they need to be like medically treated isn't necessarily my first thought. My first thought is like, holy shit you are hungry either psychologically physically or spiritually and that's likely a result of the trauma of diet culture that's what that tells me and so for me i'm like and and i I think like i want to point to this incredible new study that came out i think it was like last year actually but it came out of a university of glasgow in scotland and and they found that first of all two findings that are interesting. One is that like there's two types of hunger. There's a physiological hunger, which can be tested with a blood glucose um, test. And then there's psychological hunger, the idea of the the knowledge that you cannot eat to the point of being full, or you like you feel like you can't, which is the dieting mentality. Um, And they found that when it came to decision making, that it was actually the psychological sense that you couldn't eat what you wanted as much as you wanted, that created short term decision making over and over and over and over. over again and short-term decision making. Um, essentially means you're in survival mode. It means you're trying to get as many calories as possible because your body is afraid. Um, It means that you're like not thinking long-term about your career, about your relationships, about like any number of things um, because you're in survival mode. And that when people are not hungry, either physiologically or psychologically, they tend to make long-term decisions that are like, you know, it's like, what do I want long-term? Like, what are the things that are going to make me feel good in my body all day? Um, And so I think you Really, again, you find that like these behaviors, they don't emerge in a vacuum. They emerge in the context of diet culture.
0: There's this messaging around people who lose weight that their life doesn't start until they're skinny. And in some ways, who they were before wasn't good enough. And so, even if somebody makes healthy choices and they do feel better, and their joints feel better, and it is, it is better for them, and they do it in a healthy way that doesn't feel restrictive, they just start to change their behaviors in a, in a way that's positive. Um, sometimes the reactions from those around them are so profound that if they end up back where they started from, they're worse off than ever because they've now been told that the person that they became for whatever amount of time they've, they had lost weight was the real them. Then this is this is the one who gets to fall in love and have a great life. Mm -hmm. Now you're back to the old you that wasn't deserving of all that. How do we change those conversations? Because it's hard when the messaging around us in magazines and movies and books is always that the person who improves how they look ends up with all the favor and charm in their life. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was just literally like for getting ready for the podcast. Um, I'm scripting one of the episodes and I was just like, we need to stop thinking that like, have you lost weight is a compliment, right? Like it's just fat phobia. It's just like in the same way that if some, yeah, it's like th- take any example of a discriminated group and be like, do you look less like that group? You look great. Right, um, right.
0: Like, you know, it's just, it's well, just especially crazy. because there's any number of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Have you, have you lost weight? Congrats. Yeah. I've been very ill.
1: Yeah right. like yeah. right
0: we have no idea why and and so you're right it can feel like it's supposed to be a compliment but it isn't always. Yeah
1: so I think like you know one tool is like just get that out of your vocabulary. It might feel like you know it's like we've been taught that's a go to but just get rid of that one. Um and and I don't know but yeah I think like what you're talking about that cycle of, you know, I lose weight, I get all these compliments, and then I ultimately gain weight, right? Because at the end of the day, an important thing to understand about dieting is like, dieting, our culture understands it as positive and health promoting, but our body considers it a threat to our survival. So once the body picks up on the fact that you're like restricting food, it immediately goes into starvation mode, it goes into saving your life. Um, And so this is where you see the cycling happening, the weight loss, your body assimilates to the fact that you're eating this very small amount of food, it's like, holy shit we got to save her life and then you gain weight and then you start to feel like garbage um and so and this for the dieting person this happens over and over and over and over again over a lifetime it's extremely distressing to a person like just spiritually but also physiologically um so yeah i mean i think like people need to stop associating with weight loss and weight gain with like failure or success, um, it's really, really difficult for, again for people to do that because we literally live in a culture where people are taught that like, like you said, like you're thin and you get everything and you're healthy and everything's amazing or you get nothing. And, and I think the other important thing to point out, um, well, there's a couple more things. Like first of all, you know, the statistics are really clear that like less than 1% of women who are considered fat will ever be like medically considered a normal weight that's just the facts, right? Like- Meaning um, that
0: there's not anything that they could do because genetically they're predisposed to be of of a certain size?
1: I mean, yeah, either whether it's genetics or the fact that like, you know, ultimately for whatever reason, like they're at a higher weight, like their body is going to stay at that. It's going to fight to stay at that weight. Like we see that a
0: lot with like the biggest loser where they do these extremes and almost all of them return to normal weight because- Unfortunately, they have to work that much harder to keep going down or maintaining than the average person. It's a terrible scientific discovery that they found that's essentially like, um, then your body adjusts and you have to do even more to stay the same, which is a real mind for those people.
1: Well, I mean that show
0: is also just like completely yeah. moral. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's really it's dangerous like, and yeah. promotes uh, practices that are just not healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and and so and yeah, I mean it's like dehumanizing and all that stuff. But, like I think you know the idea that like you know the, the American people in general can rally behind a show like that really indicates the level of work that we need to do around like really recalibrating the fact that like every single person deserves to live a life free from big bigotry and discrimination,
0: regardless of their body size or their health status. Right. And that's a message you keep coming back to. And that that leads me to believe that you think right now we beyond the aesthetics and and whether or not you're on the cover of a magazine, it's also about changing our belief system on whether those Mm -hmm. people are deserving of basic rights and opportunities.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, I think like, you know, to, to uh, another thing I was just writing about before we started our conversation was like, you know, when you when I look at like the Center for Disease Control, and they talk about like, what comprises health, and you think about it as a pie chart, um, 30, only 30% of the pie is stuff that's within our control 70% of the pie of our overall health, how long we will live, the quality of life we will have based on these like cardio metabolic sort of indicators um, are outside of our control, right? And so like, and so if I were to tell you that like, you know, the 70% of the pie in front of you is outside of your hands. And I would think like considering how zealous people are about the 30% they can control, they should be at least two times more committed to shifting the social indicators, but they're not, right? And so like, I'm like, I want a culture in which we are not obsessed over the 30% of the pie and where we are changed. We're like, you know, 70% of the pie is like, do people have access to public transportation? Are they traumatized in childhood? Do they have a like family member in prison? Are they getting discriminated against day in and day out? Do they have access to clean water? We need to be focusing on that stuff because that is what really impacts whether or not people will live a long and healthy life.
0: One of the things that comes out most when people talk about fat positivity um, is the assumption that you're promoting obesity or unhealthiness. Can you sort of dispute if if you have the numbers in the studies? Um, because I've heard they're out there that essentially claim that most health issues that people associate with being weight-related um, are also things that thin people can suffer from. Um, there, there are correlations between being overweight and certain health issues. That's that's a fact, right? Um, but our belief that um all fat people are unhealthy is where we we usually skew wrong in those arguments. Am I right on I that? I mean,
1: I'm somebody who's like, you want to say I'm promoting obesity? That's fine. Like right, like I'm just like, I am promoting obesity in the sense that like I think fat people deserve to exist regardless of quote unquote, why someone is fat, whether it's because they're genetically fat and all their ancestors look are fat or because of like
0: any, anything under the sun, any, so even, even, if they're, even if they're less healthy, it's not up to you to decide that they, because it's the same issue with, okay, so th- this is slightly correlated, but the idea that there's a lot less research into lung cancer, because people think that people who have lung cancer are usually smokers, so they brought it on themselves. But there are plenty of people who aren't smokers who get lung cancer, and they're the ones who also suffer when research makes it so that lung cancer is one of the cancers we have the least uh, ground in the last couple decades in terms of improving uh, rates of survival, right? So because people think you've deserved it because you brought it on yourself, I think some people feel the same way about obesity, right? If you can control whether you... um are suffering health issues. You're making choices that are contributing to those health issues. Should it be the responsibility of everyone else?
1: I mean, at the end of the day, I think it really goes back to what I was mentioning about like the fact that Really, our quality of life and our longevity are like largely things that are societal, that are social, right? Um, and so I can't, I just really can't get behind like this idea that there's always, I mean, first of all, right, there's always going to be people with chronic illness, whether they're fat or thin. There's always going to be people with disabilities, whether they're fat or thin, right? Like, and so for me, like, we are never and we should not want a world in which every single person is like an athletic, like, you know, like, we. We just, that world is is like a eugenics world. We don't live in that world. I don't want that world. We're never going to have that. World and so like at the end of the day, right? Like the idea that I only want to pay for what I personally am experiencing, or like I only want to do this because I worked hardest. That is essentially a world. That's a Darwinian world of survival of the fittest, and that is an immoral world. So I can't. I'm not gonna like substantiate or like like assuage people's anxieties if they believe in like a Darwinist. I'm like, sorry, you're
0: just a dick. Like I can't help you. You know. (laughs) So. So do you, can you, have you done the work or, or is it part of your academic academic studies to find out the root cause of why we decided this aesthetic was the most appealing because it obviously changes with different generations and in different countries, it's very different. Um, but it used to be that weight was a sign of affluence. You could afford to eat and be overweight because you had achieved a level and you didn't have to do work out in the fields. You were a higher status. Um. At what point and when did we decide the same way that it's sort of inexplicable to me, when do we decide that like smoking a cigarette was a sign of being cool? But even I sometimes in movies will be like, oh, I get what they're doing with this scene. That person's cool. Um, mm-hmm. Do we know when that happened and when we decided that the idea of what was good and right in society was um, this extremely fit, athletic, super skinny vibe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like,
0: you know, on the one hand, I think that um, like
1: anti-fat attitudes have kind of like um, spiked and and ebbed and flowed in, at different points. Um, like for instance, one thing that a lot of people don't know is like, right you know certainly we consider weight um like weight preoccupation to be a gendered issue specifically for women um like it used to be considered a, a men's issue um and, and men it, you know it's sort of like it, it, people came down really hard on men who were higher weight and and we don't really see that so much in our culture it's hard for me to draw like this straight line i do think that you're sort of observation around class. I mean, definitely whatever requires the most resource, whatever body is going to require the most resources, um, that's the body that is going to be considered the morally superior and physically yeah. superior body.
0: Which now, if you, interestingly, if you don't have to do manual labor or you don't, uh, yeah, there's, there's now the ability to spend your money on health and wellness and Pelotons and everything else. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean people kind of I think of it as like people want to use health as a currency right like it's like I you know I have the time I have the resources I have the lifestyle etc um and I have the will right I have I think this is another thing that's like really fascinating that people again like I've noticed that nobody talks about is I'm like there, there's this idea that like you know that that wealthy people the people who are likelier to be athletic for example and slender um you know there's this idea that they just have their they just have their their finger on the pulse of a life secret that we're all seeking and it's like well actually what's happening is that you know people who are working class um simply that's just not a priority because right. be, because like literally they're not as invested in the hierarchy there's not as invested in having their bodies used in a capitalist way they're not as invested in like having a t- clear demarcation of like i am better
0: because i do this right. they're just not i mean it's like it's or because like they don't have the time, time because they have to feed their family i mean certain job or because they weren't more predisposed to choose that because they weren't genetically likely to have that be a fit for them. There's there's plenty of um, non-model sized people who are still really into yoga and health and, and activity yeah. for sure. But I think there's also a sense of if you're genetically predisposed to have that body type be something that if you work for it, you get it. Then you're like, oh, this is a good job for me. Right, like yeah, yeah. I whereas for right. me, like even even if I was working out three hours a day and not eating enough, my body type was never going to be that. I was constantly trying to get like the six pack you were supposed to have as a college track athlete. It was not going to happen. I have. Right a big rack of lamb and I have, uh, other body parts that kind of tell you exactly which direction my body would like to go. And if I wasn't, you know, exercising and everything else. So, um, it's interesting though. I think some of those people, they like self-select based on the fact that that's, it's not that they don't work hard, but they also, the results are very clear when they do work hard because their body is, is genetically going to, to going to become that shape that everybody kind of holds up as this ideal.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I remember learning, I had to, like a friend actually had to explain this to me and it would kind of blew my mind. Um, she was like, Virgie, the people who are naturally more slender really believe that they think they're just
0: working a lot harder than people yeah. who are not genetically I've that had way. a lot of conversations yeah. with those people and I'm like, you live with me. Which part <laughs> of this are you not seeing like Mm -hmm. on a regular basis? like, yeah, Um, well, we're running out of time and I could obviously talk to you so much more about this, but give people a little hint of what's coming up in season two of your uh, podcast, Rebel Eaters Club.
1: Yeah, um, so this season we're really focused on, you know, we're doing interviews with really cool people like chefs and academics, psychologists, like all over the place. Um, uh, And we're really also focusing on tracing the social history of food. Um, So talking about like the history of restaurants and eating and various kinds of things um, in relationship to those interviews and really seeing ourselves kind of in the ripple effect of this history. So that's what's coming up the podcast is called rebel eaters club and you could subscribe on
0: apple or spotify awesome and before i let you go you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects didn't expect a kind of spanish inquisition (laughs) nobody expects the spanish inquisition it's the spanish inquisition number one what's your desert island album you can only have one Oh, my
1: goodness. Right? I'm just gonna go with like, whatever I like right now. And it is the James Brown Christmas album. Oh,
0: okay. I gotta check that out. Uh, Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
1: Ooh, um, I think honestly, maybe like being maybe being bubbly,
0: but I think like going through so much bullshit close second. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, assholes. You really helped. Just shoot me right to the top. Um, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, I mean, like, I do wish like I do wish
1: that I was just someone who was like, purely just like 100% like committed to just helping everyone around me thrive. I don't love that I'm still like, still have that ego kind of like gnawing at me. In what sense? I don't know, like, sometimes I'm like, oh, this is the path, this is what the path would be if you were more of a Mother Teresa type, but you're going to take this oh, path. got it, got
0: it, got it. So, <laughs> the, so the, the you have to be a martyr versus, like, Literally. let me balance my own success and happiness with the work that I do it's, for others?
1: I, I know it's ridiculous, and I'm just like, I just have this fantasy, that like, someday I'm going to, like, come into this spiritual awakening where I'm like, my whole purpose is to help others thrive, like, you know, and I just, and I feel like, I'm like, that's mostly what my life is about, but it's, like, probably five, <laughs> or seven percent just like me just being like I yeah. want the fancy thing Give yeah it like every too. once
0: in a while you're like yeah but I need that money because I like clothes um, <laughs> yes. which I know you do because your Instagram your style is so awesome and Thank I love you. your advocacy too for like different brands to be um size inclusive because there's a lot of big people who want to look good uh yes. and I love how you how you you style your body and everything else so great um number four have you ever been in a fist fight oh no I've been one pushing match that's it (laughs) oh that sounds like something I wish I could see it really does just like a really lame pushing match where both people think they're being real hard uh that that sounds that sounds good uh number five if you could switch lives with anyone for a day who would it be oh my gosh the person who immediately came to mind was James Baldwin mostly because I just want to be in his head Wow. That is the most surprising answer. Almost anyone's given. Like it's a great answer. It's just like, okay, look at you. Like it's cerebral. It's wise. It's, yes. You switch genders, which I love when people yes. switch genders. I don't know why everyone wouldn't want to try out the other just to see, or not that there's another and neither, because it's not necessarily binary, but you and know, I mean, gender is a social construct anyway. Okay. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my
1: gosh, that's tough. I mean, there's been so many embarrassing moments.
0: Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Can I pass? Can I do a- no. it? Okay. No. Hmm. You know what? Everyone always tries to pass on this. And I think it's a great quality that successful <laughs> people don't you know, sit and linger in those moments. But I think we all need to admit to and own up to those moments so that everyone listening can say, I'm not the only one who has pooped in my neighbor's backyard. Thank you, Jen Latta for that one. Oh my God, Uh,
1: yes, yes, I love that. I uh, mean, it's like my, always my embarrassing things
0: are about like social gaffes. They're like just Always, they're always, it's always farting, peeing, pooping, or doing something in front of your crush or tripping
1: yeah i mean i think that like okay the one that's coming to mind is that i remember at some point again this was like earlier in my in my experience and i was like very committed to like showing every single human being that i met that i was like not some desexualized like person that they could just like toss aside that I was like a strong sexual fat woman and I remember like I was at this work like team building work thing and then they actually asked like what we're going to do we're, we're going to be around the fire and we're going to share our most embarrassing things and everybody told normal things and I told a story about how I gave a blowjob in a Cemetery, and they were like the whole time trying kind to of just like stop, just stop, just stop, and I was
0: like, I will not accept being silenced right now. I am a strong, sexual woman. And you like, asked me for something <laughs> embarrassing, and now I am more embarrassed than the original <laughs> incident, <laughs> yes. which is amazing. So that was like embarrassing. I had, I had Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle on this podcast and they, we all agreed that in the panel that we did for ESPNW, we were going to start by saying something bad about ourselves so that everyone would feel like they could like us. Cause no one likes a woman who's self-assured. Like that was the um, thing we were getting at is like how bullshit it is that women who are successful can't be loved. So we were going to start out with something. And I went with like something actually embarrassing. And then Abby's like, Mm, turns out like i don't like working out that much now that i retired and i'm like that's not embarrassing (laughs) yes totally just you've just avoided the whole premise of this which was supposed to be to fully embarrass yourself and here i am (laughs) left alone talking about how my crotch sweats when i'm on tv sometimes (laughs) there i did it again i just said it again (laughs) damn it uh number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve
1: Ooh, I mean, I feel like it's like the same thing around the the earlier thing where it's like, I do think that, uh, like, I do feel like I keep striving for this, like, enlightened state where I just, like, understand, like, what motivates all human behavior, no matter how terrible
0: it is. Okay, um, very lofty. <laughs> yes, can, we, can, we, can we find some achievable goals?
1: Yes. I'm
0: <laughs> like, I don't know what the
1: achievable version of this would be. I think, like, I don't know. You know what? Like, I'm just going to stick with that because, like, it's ridiculous, but it's also my truth.
0: Right. Well, and also, I think if that keeps coming back to you, then there's probably some nugget in there of balance that you need to find a better you need to find a better balance, I think. Because mm, mm. if it keeps making you feel that way, then it, it's probably, there's something probably there to dig into. Mm. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to?
1: Oh, that like every, that 100% of the things that we do were in
0: the name of like love, justice, and thriving. And five. Right. Wait, wait, you just said that not everything you do is in the name of that. So <laughs> does it have to be, wait, not 100%. <laughs> Not a hundred, because sometimes you just need to take a break from all the thriving and watch some like bad television.
1: It's true. I agree.
0: But if I were a commissioner of life for a day, I'd be like, your job today, everyone, is to just have as much fun as possible. Okay. For one day, I, I accept it. Just for one day, I accept it. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, oh my
1: goodness. Um, the most scared I've ever been i don't know i mean i had like a pretty hard like i mean i had a, a really dysfunctional childhood so probably like the years between like zero and 18. <laughs> oh
0: wow okay. <laughs> okay yeah you were just like a terrified one year old <laughs> yeah i mean like think like when you're in a dysfunctional family like things get really bad really fast you know oh so that's legit like it was yeah. dysfunctional enough to fear for your safety
1: i mean i think like not always not always physical safety but like kind of the sense that like that like there are adults who are in charge and you trust them like you know like that that right. vibe yeah. yeah
0: okay uh number 10 what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you Uh i think
1: the first one huh like probably um like intellectual like something a little bit different right like someone who makes like someone who's sort of provocative um okay. i think like maybe provocative is provocative. just like own standalone okay. thing and then i think one of them would be something around like intellects right like oh my gosh smart like a smart
0: enlightened. enlightened brilliant <laughs> genius brilliant <Brilliant's> great um <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> provocative this is a good start I can't yeah. wait for the last one.
1: Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Provocative. And,
0: um, you know, I do think, like, style is up there, like, sort of Okay, just, like, stylish. Okay. Yeah. Can I just tell you that there are so many people that just go with, like, kind, loving, and nice, or smart, funny, and cool. They're lying. I, no, I don't think they're <laughs> lying. I think they're not... I think that they haven't thought about it hard enough. And I think... <laughs> brilliant provocative and stylish is a tremendous combo and i think anyone would want that um final question who should i have on this podcast it can be anyone who does anything who's interesting Hmm. who do you love or find interesting or think i should talk to
1: oh my goodness oh my gosh there's so many people i feel like they're all coming into my brain all at once (laughs) um I think like I'm thinking about the intersection of kind of like what I do and then <clears throat> someone who is like an athlete, like someone who's like at the co- really kind of at the like living at that intersection. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking just about like, you know, like there's so many amazing um, like plus size yoga people like Jessamine Stanley. Um, yeah, she would be amazing to have on. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to just stick with Jessamine. Right, let's stick with
0: Jessamine Stanley. Okay, yeah. I'm going to aim for that. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who don't save giant sheets of wrapping paper when they get a big present. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly good wrapping paper. Fold it up, put it in the closet. Wrap a smaller gift in it later. Put a bow where there was some tape. No one's going to see it. You know, throw it in the closet. You got some pretty bags that someone gave you wine in, some tissue paper in your purchase, some ribbons that you saved. Is this just me who does this? Are the rest of you throwing this stuff out and then buying more when you have to give someone a gift? Because one day if I snap, it's going to be about this. What a waste of paper. Save that shit. Also, use both sides of your computer paper when you can, too. And don't print out a bunch of stuff that you're not going to read. Just read it on your phone or your computer. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Stop throwing out gift bags and wrapping paper and ribbons and start regifting that shit instead. We create a lot of waste. This is easy. It's tiny, but it's easy and it helps. There, I fixed it. Don't forget to go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Five stars, of course. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: Well, that's what she said.